0: I'm very excited because we are in a new teaching series that I really, really like. It is called Radical. Ephesians for Misfits. Because we're in this refresh season as a church, and we've regrouped committed team members of missional adults, and we want to form a community of misfits on a mission Finding identity in Jesus. And now we're refocusing on our values, our vision, our mission. And so we're asking, what do these things mean? What is it really all about? So that's why we're using this spelling of radical. Because it's a word that means the part of the plant that becomes the primary root. And that feels like a really apt metaphor for where we're at. And that's why we're studying the book of Ephesians. Because unlike many of other, uh, Paul's other letters, this letter doesn't deal with as much of the minutia of uh, everyday challenges in the local congregation. This is more of a 10,000 foot view of all that Paul is teaching the churches that he's planting about Jesus, about the gospel, and about church. So, for our purposes, Ephesians is like a, a misfit manifesto. It's where we find our seed verse as a church, being rooted and established in love. And so this week we're going to look at the first half of chapter 2. Last week we were in chapter 1. And the first half of chapter 2 culminates in a very familiar verse to a lot of us. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this verse quoted. Um, And I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to that verse this morning. This might be a bit of a challenging word for some of us. Uh, You might have to wrestle with a little bit of what I'm saying this morning. But that's that's actually part of the plan. I want you to know that. That I am going to say things sometimes that you're going to disagree with. And that's okay. We can disagree. Um, That's actually part of how we grow. Did you know that muscles don't grow until you submit them to a little bit of resistance? And then they grow. So you might feel a little bit of that resistance, a little bit of that pain of muscles growing this morning. But you know what my drill sergeant used to always say in boot camp? He used to say, pain is weakness leaving your body. That's exactly how he would say it. Pain is just weakness leaving your body. So um, I also want to say that that's what small groups are for. That's why I go to the trouble of creating a a small group discussion guide so that when we gather, we can wrestle with these ideas. We can hear and learn from one another. Different perspectives and grow in that way. And learn how to disagree well, right? Isn't that something we need to learn how to do when we look around our nation today? We need to learn how to disagree well. So, I'm going to start by talking about how we all approach texts. Every one of us, we all approach texts reading them through our lenses. We all have lenses, and those lenses affect the questions that we ask about the text that we're reading and the questions we don't ask because we make assumptions. And then I'm going to talk about some of the ways that we misunderstand this concept that we're going to talk about this morning, faith in Christ. What is faith in Christ? Some ways that we misunderstand that. And then I'm going to close with a a section that I call, so what? What does all this matter anyways? So um, this might be, for some of you, a little bit of a thinking cap type of message. That's okay. We can worship God with our minds this morning too. So put on your thinking caps and let's start with a parable. In a book called Mere Discipleship, Dr. Lee Camp tells this parable. You ready? Imagine a remote Hamlet, a small village, removed from the rest of the world. And in this hamlet, the, all the inhabitants are afflicted with a strange eye disease. Suppose that this is a genetically inherited disease that manifests itself with only one symptom, a strange cataract, which doesn't blur the victim's vision, but instead the cataract simply casts a rose-colored tint over the afflicted's vision. In such a scenario, it's quite likely that all the inhabitants of this small provincial village would simply assume that the world is rose-tinted. So strong, in fact, would this assumption be that the inhabitants of this little hamlet would likely never even discuss it. And certainly they'd never question it. Because anyone who might question such an empirically proven assumption would certainly be considered a little strange, if not irrational. Right? They would say, what, do you want to know? what more do you want to know? You can see it with your own eyes, right? So this parable is designed to show us something about our social locations and the way in which our social locations affect the way we view things that we're interpreting. And what I mean by social location is I mean that we are all situated geographically, we're all situated historically, and culturally, and even bodily. And the way in which we are situated affects the way that we bring ourselves to what we're interpreting. So, today we're gonna look at a passage that has a long history of interpretation in the Christian tradition. And before we read this passage together, we need to realize that most of us already think we know what it means. Because we've been taught, and we have social locations that tell us what this means. And uh, like the inhabitants of that small little hamlet, maybe you've never even questioned it. You've just thought that's what it means. Surely, you would question that would be irrational. And here's why. This month marks the 502nd anniversary, 502 years, since Martin Luther nailed his infamous 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, 1517, October 31st. And that's traditionally what we, what we think of when we think of the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. And so, from that initial objection, those 95 theses, sparked a movement. And out of that movement grew all these denominations that you see past Luther. Right there. So you've got Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists and even Covenanters, right? Covenanters come from that movement. But, what if I were to tell you that the Reformation has given us a rose-tinted cataract. And we see, the eye, we see the world through Protestant eyes. Western, modern, Protestant lenses. N.T. Wright is a world-renowned historian and theologian. He's written a lot about this subject. And he has a famous line that I think we need to keep in mind as we read this text this morning. Here's what he says. He says, For too long... We have read the scriptures with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. But we need to get back to reading with 1st century eyes and 21st century questions. Did you catch that? That's our goal. So, that's how we want to approach this text this morning. We want to understand what is faith in Christ from the perspective of the Apostle Paul and the audience The recipients of Ephesians, its original recipient, And then we want to ask of that text 21st century questions. But before we dive right into the passage, would you pray with me for the Spirit's illumination? Holy Spirit of God, Spirit that animated the Jesus movement in Paul's day. We pray that you would blow afresh upon us this morning. Shine your light of wisdom and truth on the scriptures today. Give us eyes to see how you are at work in our day. Give us ears to hear your voice calling us into new ways. Give us hearts that delight in serving you with all that we are and all that you are making us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, you're welcome to follow along in your own translation of the Bible if you got one. You can look on your smart devices, old-fashioned paper devices, or you can follow along on the screen beside me. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, And you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now, who's now at work in all those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. So, in the first five verses of this passage, Paul uses this vivid metaphor that has stuck with a lot of us. We were dead in our transgressions. But God made us alive in Christ. Who doesn't like a good zombie movie, right? Yeah. Zombies are fun. I haven't actually gotten into The Walking Dead. I know a lot of people have. But I did see a really cool zombie movie a few years ago called uh, Warm Bodies. Anybody seen this movie? This is adorable, this is an adorable movie. It's kind of a rom-com. No, it's really kind of a rom-com. It's about a love, it's a love story. And uh, it's, it's funny. It's quirky. Uh, I think you'll like it if you're into zombie movies. Um, but there's something compelling about zombie stories. They're very, very popular. I think this is my working theory. This is why I think zombie movies are so, and shows are so popular. I think that they're a way of us exploring questions like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? And what causes us to think of others as inhuman? I think that's why zombie movies are so appealing to us. And I wish I had an entire series to unpack those questions, but I don't. I don't even have a lot of time left in this message, so we're not going to unpack those questions, so, so to speak. But uh, I was listening to something on the radio this past week, and it made me think of this, this metaphor that Paul's using. I was listening to a, a, an interview about prison reform. And the host was interviewing a man that's currently incarcerated. And she was talking about policies that were going to take effect in a few years. And the man said this, he said, Time in here feels different than out there. He said, we do the same thing every day. And so I don't really feel like I'm living my life, I'm just existing. And that really stuck with me. I said, that's what Paul's talking about in this metaphor. Paul is capturing a really important part of what it means to be joined with God in the Messiah through the Spirit. We are made alive in a dynamic, loving relationship with God and others. We were made to be in shalom with God and others. To be in wholeness and harmony And right relatedness with others. But sin has disrupted that shalom. And sin has numbed us to God. Has numbed us to his love. Has numbed us to our love for one another. So without Christ, we're not truly living. We're just existing. But by being joined with Christ. And by and being joined with Christ in the waters of baptism and through receiving the Holy Spirit, our lives become what they were always meant to be. Our lives take on that purpose, that meaning, and we begin to live into the Christ-like character that we were always meant to have. We become part of God's diverse family, like we were always meant to be. And we get to participate in God's mission, just like God always intended But there's more to this passage than just the metaphor of being made alive from being dead in our transgressions. The second half of this passage, Paul goes on to talk about two very familiar concepts to Western modern Protestants grace and faith. Grace and faith. And it doesn't really matter if you identify as a Protestant or not. I don't strongly identify as a Protestant. If you are part of the English-speaking Western world, which we all are in this room, you have come under the influence of the Protestant Reformation, whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not. You and I in the United States have, have been taught and have formed lenses, Protestant lenses. And this verse that we're looking at in this passage about faith and about grace is kind of like ground zero for a Protestant reformation thinking. So a lot of people uh, in the English-speaking world, for them, this is the verse that points to the doctrine of justification, which means being made right with God, How how we are put in right relationship with God. And this all goes back to that guy, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk, and when he was a monk, he was part of the Roman Catholic Church. There really was just one church. There was the Roman Catholic Church, and and there was the Eastern Orthodox Church, but there was no tens of thousands of little mini denominations, right, like there are today. And he was absolutely uh, committed to being a follower of Jesus, but he never quite felt like he measured up. Have you ever had that feeling? He felt like he couldn't quite be worthy enough for his calling as a monk, and He was also a scholar. He taught theology in the seminary. And he strongly objected to some of the things that were going on in his church, like the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period. For example, one of the things that scandalized Martin Luther was the selling of indulgences. Indulgences was a technique um, that he saw used as a fundraiser to build big church buildings. And this is how it would work. People could purchase certificates that would give them the meritus virtue or righteousness of the saints. And so you could buy righteousness. And you could buy some of your family members their uh, exit out of purgatory. So they even had little slogans. I can't, I can't think of this, how the slogan goes, but it's like, if you put a coin in the pot, then you're Aunt gets out of purgatory or something like that. (laughs) It was great. So, uh, So Martin Luther objected to these things. He said, you can't earn righteousness. You can't buy it. That's not what the gospel says. So Martin Luther received this message of grace as a message of freedom. It was liberating for Martin Luther. He felt like he could never measure up, but this message of grace liberated him. The Roman Catholic Church was granting righteousness like it was meritous. People could earn it. And God's grace can't be earned. And then there was these things called works. Works were the foil against which Martin Luther contrasted grace. Grace, good works bad. But remember what I said before. We're going to be looking at this passage with first century eyes and 21st century questions, not 16th century questions. Not Martin Luther's questions. Martin Luther's questions that he was asking were perfectly appropriate for the 16th century. I think he should have been asking those questions. But we don't live in the 16th century. We live in the 21st century. So we need to ask questions relevant for our day. We also need to recognize that Paul was not writing this letter to the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, right? Paul was writing this letter to churches in the Roman province of Asia in the 1st century. And they didn't have a pope. And they didn't have indulgences. So the works that Paul is talking about are not the same works that Martin Luther was talking about. So what does Paul mean when he talks about faith in Christ? What is this concept? What is Paul talking about? This word in Greek is pistis. That's the word that we translate as faith. But as you know, words evolve. Did you know that words evolve as they're used in culture? For example, did you know that silly used to mean worthy and blessed? (laughs) Silly started out as worthy and blessed, and then it came to refer to weak and or vulnerable things and now it just means dumb things, right? So it it evolved over time. Worthy to, to vulnerable to dumb. Or what about awful? Awful used to just mean full of awe. We'd say the awful majesty of God. Now awful just means bad. So you'd say awful majesty would be bad majesty. And here's my favorite. Literally has literally evolved in its usage in popular culture, right? Literally no longer literally means literally anymore. Now, literally, literally means emphasis. Literally. That's what it means now. So, the word faith has evolved with use. And now when we say faith, we're not even sure what we mean by faith. Faith for us, no longer means what it meant for Paul and his hearers. For example, here's one that I hear a lot. Faith in Christ means believing the Bible. This is faith in Christ as Biblicism. And some people in the Western world, um, they have a tough time believing in a person. It's easier to believe in a book. Because in the Western world, in the modern world, we're taught to crave propositional truths, absolute truths that can never be questioned. And we get those a lot of times from books. So we look to a book. The Bible becomes our absolute truth, the final arbiter, especially when we get to be the ones interpreting that book, right? Then it's really the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, as long as we get to interpret it. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't believe the Bible. I'm a Bible nerd. I have degrees in Biblical Studies. I'm saying that I don't worship the Bible. It's not Father, Son, Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So, we have to remember the Bible points to the living God. This always reminds me of a a story. So, when our kids were a little bit younger, we took a road trip to Disney World, like, like you do. And I remember as we were coming into Florida, the kids were getting more and more excited. And as we got into Orlando, more and more excited. And as we got really close to the park, the kids were super excited. And when they saw the Disneyland sign, Disney World sign, they were so excited they wanted to stop and take a picture with the Disney World sign. And I remember being like, why do you want to take a picture with the Disney World sign when we can go through the sign and go into Disney World? Right? That's kind of like what people are doing when they're, they're getting their life from their belief in the Bible. It's like the Bible is a sign that points us to the living God. Don't stop with the Bible. Go on through and meet with the living God. Right? Another misconception of faith in Christ that is common these days is Faith in Christ is the same as having correct doctrine. This is a really common one. Because again, the modern western world likes our tidy categories, right? We like to systematize things. Everything in its place. And so we've systematized Christian faith into a list of doctrines. And and we we say things like have you read my statement of faith on our website? (laughs) And that's what faith in Christ is. It's reduced to these propositions. But reciting the carefully crafted words of a doctrinal statement is not the same as having faith in Christ, right? Within a few generations of that 1517 event where Martin Luther hammered the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, his beliefs had become systematized. They had turned into Lutheranism. Imagine having a movement named after you while you're still alive, right? That's pretty, uh, that's hard to keep us, you know, from getting a big head. Entire countries adopted Lutheranism. Entire countries were Lutheran. One of them was Sweden. And in Sweden, during this time, 16th, 17th century, into the, into the 18th century, um, this systematizing of Christian faith became really, really common. And it formed something that historically we call scholasticism. They had really good doctrine. They could recite their doctrine really, really well, but they had no living faith. And at this time in Sweden, people were suffering. There was an epidemic of alcoholism, family uh, domestic violence, and families breaking up. There was Deep, deep poverty in Sweden. So people were were craving and longing for a living faith. So they started meeting in their homes. They said, we can't go to the church because it's it's just dead tradition. So they started meeting in their homes and reading the Bible for themselves. And this gave birth to pietism. Pietism has a bad rap. Pietism gets confused with pietistic, you know, being pietistic. But pietism was not pietistic. Pietists originally started orphanages, hospitals. They did a lot of social justice work. They weren't just about me and Jesus. But it started with a living faith. It started with uh, these readers of the Bible gathering in homes. So, faith in Christ can't be reduced to correct doctrine. Faith in Christ also can't be reduced to a particular theory of the atonement. What I mean by the atonement is the idea that in Christ, God reconciled us to God's self through Jesus dying on the cross. How did he do that? We don't know. The New Testament gives us a lot of different vivid metaphors for how that works. But the New Testament never picks one of them and says, that's the one. But sometimes denominations do. They pick one and they say that's how it works and if you don't believe that's how it works you don't have faith in Christ. I like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. Christians would not all agree as to how important these theories are. The thing itself the thing itself being atonement, is infinitely more important than any explanations that theologians have produced. No explanation will ever be quite adequate to the reality. He also gave this analogy where, back in his day, it was like the 50s, I think, they didn't really have the modern idea of nutrients. This was kind of new to them, right? So he said, a meal makes you feel better when you're sick. (laughs) He said, I don't know how that works, but it just works. And the fact that it works is enough. And, And the atonement is like that. We know that God has reconciled us through Jesus on the cross. How that works? Not as important as the fact that it does work. Here's a common one in our pluralistic society. Sometimes faith in Christ is just reduced to just plain optimism. You can strip faith in Christ of all the particularities and just make it generally a sunny outlook on life. That's faith in Christ. I believe in everything's going to work out for the good. God's going to do it somehow. And that's faith in Christ. But faith in Christ is rooted in a particular person Namely, Jesus. And it's rooted in the particular promises of Jesus. So faith in Christ is not optimism either. Finally, faith in Christ is not intellectual assent. This is a really common mistake that we make. Faith in Christ is not merely affirming the truth with our minds because we aren't brains in a vat. Right? We are whole persons. So the intellectual aspect of faith, while it's important, is not exhaustive. When Jesus began his ministry, he started proclaiming that God's reign was arriving in and through his ministry. That there was a new world order that was breaking into the world. And he would use this phrase, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. When we hear that today, we often think, okay, that means feel really bad about my sins, maybe cry a little bit, and then affirm some doctrines about the cross or forgiveness or something. That's repent and believe in Jesus, right? But when we begin to hear these words with first century ears, a whole new picture emerges. Let me show you how that works. Josephus was a Jewish rebel that was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. And he fought in the Jewish wars against the Roman Empire. Now they lost, of course, and in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But he switched sides and he worked for Rome after that. And he wrote some some big long books. But Josephus, when he was a rebel, he went to Galilee and he tried to recruit more Jewish rebels to fight against Rome with him. And what he would say to them is this. He would say, repent and believe in me. That's what Josephus would say. He didn't mean feel sorry about your sins and say a sinner's prayer and believe some abstract propositional doctrine. No, here's what he meant. He meant stop living your life the way you've been living it. Start living it in this direction and follow me. Come with me and fight with me against Rome. Repentance is a turning of your life, a turning of your trajectory in life. That's what Josephus meant, and that's what Jesus meant. So, when we get into verses uh, 9 and 10, 8, 9, and 10 of this passage, when we talk about faith in Christ, we have to keep these things in mind. This whole life trajectory transformation. It reminds me of something that I, that I heard on Friday night. Juice and Ginger invited us to a wonderful uh, gala. And uh, it was a missions organization. A Christian missions organization was holding a fundraising gala. And they had many special guest speakers. And one of those special guest speakers was a former colonel in the Burmese army. And part of his job in the Burmese army was to eradicate ethnic minorities that were considered a threat against the government. He was given orders to to destroy villages. And then he was wounded, like critically wounded in uh, in a battle where I thought something like 90% of his body was burned in a fire. And he was in a coma for two months. And while he was in this coma, he had an experience in which he encountered Jesus. This is what he says. And in that moment, he felt Jesus' love, and he knew that he was going to live, that he wasn't going to die. So when he awoke from his coma, he still had to recover from his injuries. That took two years. But if you're in a hospital for two years recovering from your injuries, you have a lot of time to think about your life. And that that encounter with Jesus... Changed the trajectory of his life. He said that at one time he was taking orders from the Burmese army. He said, but after that experience encountering Jesus, sensing his love, he had a new trajectory in his life. He was no longer a soldier in the Burmese army. Now he had a new commanding officer. That's what he said. And so now today... He spends his life trying to rescue people that are being trafficked, feed people who are desperately hungry, and save some of the very same people that he was once ordered to eradicate. His whole life's trajectory shifted because of an encounter with the living God. So, faith in Christ is not just something we do with our heads It's not just something, it's not just to do with a book. Faith in Christ is a holistic trajectory of life thing. It's a vitally connected and energized relationship with the living God. I like to put it like this. Faith in Christ is about our allegiance. I think allegiance is the best way for us to capture this pistis word, translate it into our modern day context. Faith in Christ is about trust. It's about loyalty. It's about obedience. Faith in Christ is about our whole lives being caught up into the life of God. It's about our hearts, our minds, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, everything about us being taken up into the life of God and and transfigured. So, here's the so what part. This is why this matters. Because we live in a world where every day, whether we realize it or not, we are being formed to compartmentalize our lives. Western culture has taught us that we have a religious life, we have a social life, we have a married life, we have all these different lives. And we can live them independent of each other. I could be one way on Sunday, I could be one way on Monday. But faith in Christ cannot be compartmentalized. Faith in Christ is a whole life and being transformation. Faith in Christ is political, social, religious, economic, spiritual, physical, emotional. It's all of the above. Faith in Christ is not about being saved from works, like feeding the poor, rescuing the trafficked. It's being saved for works. That's why Paul concludes this passage with the verse that says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. For too long we've had this foil. Works are bad, grace is good. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we have been created new. Our new lives are created recreated in order to walk in the newness of life that God is giving us. And that includes working, spending our lives working for others. Matthew Bates is the author of a book that I cannot recommend more highly. I love this book. I have a something like 16-page review of the book, something like that. I could send you. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. He tackles this subject that we've been talking about. Here's a short, short snippet of what he writes. Although contemporary Christian culture tends to separate personal salvation from discipleship, allegiance is where they finally meet. And they don't just meet, they embrace. A person is not first saved by faith in Jesus uh, death for sins and then once that's secured then they're plugged into a discipleship program as an optional extra in the hope that they might someday grow. On the contrary a person is saved when she or he becomes a disciple by declaring allegiance to Jesus the king. That is when a person agrees to submit Obediently to Jesus' wise and sovereign rule, so as to take up his way of life. Salvation by allegiance alone. Here's the other reason why this is really important today the so what of all this is that we live in a particularly polarized time in this nation, and there are all kinds of allegiances. That are vying for our hearts and minds. Our whole lives. And you and I can easily get swept up into those movements. We can easily uh, spend our energies fighting for things that aren't the kingdom of God. I'm not telling you, don't vote. (laughs) I'm going to vote. But what I'm telling you is, we have to prioritize. We have to give our entire hearts, give our whole lives to God. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Money is one of those masters that is vying for our allegiance. Political partisan philosophies are one of those masters that are vying for our allegiances. But we cannot serve two masters. We can only serve the one. So, Sisters and brothers, every day you and I are tempted to bow down before other masters, other lords. Every day we're tempted in a thousand little ways to give our energies and our lives over to pursuits other than the renewal of all things. Every day in a thousand little ways we're tempted to keep back a little part of our hearts for something else. Little, Harbor little idols in our hearts. Or we're tempted to put our trust in politicians. Tanks and bombs. Sometimes romance. Definitely money. But the good news is this. That God has defeated every power in Christ that corrupts the world. God has already won the decisive victory in the war against evil. It's already done. We are in what N.T. Wright calls mopping up operations. The last death throes of evil kind of flailing about, but we are assured victory because Christ has already won on the cross. The good news is that you and I are not the first missionaries. God is the first missionary. This is God's mission and God has invited you and I to join him in that mission. The good news is that Jesus sits on the throne even now and he's restoring all things to the shalom that was always intended to have. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have everything under control. You are not wringing your hands, worrying about what's going on, that you know that your plan is being implemented even as we speak. I thank you, God, that you are wise enough, resourceful enough, powerful enough, to give us a part in your mission, to empower your people to join you in this work of the renewal of all things. And God, I thank you that you are renewing all things, that all things are becoming uh, recapitulated in Christ. I thank you that all things are being renewed and rejuvenated with life and energy. I pray that we would give our whole lives to that effort. I pray that we would bow our hearts before your throne in utter gratitude for your grace. Thank you that you have secured the victory. You have secured our salvation, our liberation from the powers that corrupt this world. From the powers that oppress us. From the powers that divide us. You have secured the victory. God, I pray that we would walk in that victory. I pray that you would empower your people by your spirit. That we would become an alternative community that puts on display the beauty and the power of the gospel to destroy every dividing wall and to advance the shalom that will one day characterize the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.